Welcome to the Forbidden Forest. This is Ro reading chapter 53 of the Blood Magic series, Reclaiming. July 10th, 2009. Harry, Luna's voice was almost pandering. It was infuriating. He was sitting across from her, his legs and arms crossed, one foot jingling. It had become a familiar stance for him. Luna, I just want to be able to be close to someone. Why can't I have that? Why can't I? We've had five dates, five dinners. I'm fine with going slow. I'm not doing this for the promise of pleasure. All this is making me do is feel distracted and like I'm hyper-focusing on sex and I don't want to. I want to be positive about it, to think of sex as something good and normal and for fuck's sake, I was wrapped up in so much unhealthy, self-flagellating doubt about it for so long. I don't want that. He was so angry he was nearly crying. His voice was thick in his throat. Therapy these days kept making him feel trapped, kept pushing him toward things that made him feel out of his depth. Luna was watching him, but her face was impassive, as always. For Godric's sake, I'm not trying to replace intimacy with sex. I'm not. Harry had uncrossed himself, and he was leaning towards Luna, his face open, his palms up toward her. I just want him. It's that simple. Luna had one eyebrow raised, and Harry was so furious with her, he couldn't focus. He let out a veritable roar of anguished frustration, rising from his chair to pace up and down her little office. He let his magic swirl away from him, manifesting as a breeze that rustled the paperwork across Luna's desk and the leaves of the houseplant by her armchair. Okay, I believe you. Harry had stopped his pacing and looked at her, her eyes now downcast on the pad of paper she had been taking notes on. Luna, everyone has always been worried about me, how sick I was, how I was making poor choices and not coping, except for the one time I actually wasn't coping, the one time I really was dying and trying to die, and even then, I knew I was sick. Trust me to know when something feels good, feels right. Okay, Harry, I trust you, and I'm more pleased to hear that you trust yourself. That's what this exercise was about, wasn't it? Did you not come to the group with feelings you did not comprehend? Do you now feel as though you have a handle on them, comprehend them? I do, Harry said, sitting on the arm of the gray sofa across from Luna, one he had spent so much time agonizing, crying, and pleading with her over. One where he had curled up and talked about wanting to die. And now the place he argued with her that he was at peace with himself for the first time in many years. He was at peace with desire, with lust. He didn't feel out of control. If anything, he felt too in control. And he had admitted earlier that session, as an addict, that is usually quite a good thing, though it felt even too constraining in this case. It felt unnecessary. He wanted freedom. He didn't want the rules. Harry had known why she had done it, why she had tested him. It was a good learning experience. He had learned how to check himself, how to be challenged and exercise his control. He could apply this method to other things, coffee even. 
His magic simmered around him, hanging in the air, crackling with the tension that wrapped around Harry's very bones. Harry, I just want you to remember it's early days still. Recovery is a very long process, and it may change as you change, as time goes on. You came here and talked about pleasure, talked about how it hurt you, lied to you, captivated you. Then you were the one to raise doubts about your ability to coexist with pleasure in a healthy way, your ability to keep one separate from the other. These are issues that you brought to me and we are trying to manage together. I am happy for you to relax your own rules now, but don't expect this question to go away overnight. She flipped the long braid laced with flowers, little buttercups, over her shoulder as she wrote near the bottom of the page across her lap. Sometimes things creep up on you, things you never expected. That's what my mother used to say anyway. I'd rather we were cautious. She was looking back up at him, her large eyes taking in every detail of his dirty jeans and scuffed trainers. A line of worry had crossed her face, one he had not seen there since the first day he had come to her, when he had told her everything. Harry slumped a bit on the sofa arm. Your mother, Luna, what do you mean? Oh, she struggled with drugs, didn't you know? Psychoactive substances, though sometimes other things, muggle stuff mostly, with which she often experimented with her own magic. She used to say she was in love with the escape, with the ideas of what was possible the feelings she could create. She would say she was looking to discover new emotions. It was what eventually killed her, though she was sober for the several years just before that. That's why I got into this line of work. Harry's mouth was hanging open, staring at Luna. Luna, you never told me. Didn't I? Well, no matter. Now you know. Luna was packing away her notebook and rearranging some of the items across her desk. She looked uncharacteristically stiff in her movements, tired even. I think that's quite enough for today, don't you? She was smiling at him in her way. Harry nodded back, sensing how she had closed the conversation, had not invited more questions, more discussion. He had never heard her speak at all about why addiction, why muggle and magical mixed, why any of the things she did. She was just Luna, and he supposed he didn't need much convincing around the why. Harry moved from his perch on the sofa to open the solid oak door that Luna had charmed to be more than just a physical barrier to her personal office, a room that doubled as a space to see individuals, depending on the context. The plain oak ensured that secrets shared within the room would stay there, and it was warded such that no one could disturb a session in progress. As the mechanism clicked to allow the door to swing open, Harry heard a voice just outside mutter, Oh, thank the gods. Hestia was there, her long braids held back under a thorny ring of bramble. Tom called from the leaky. Greg just left to go and get him. Luna sighed heavily from her desk, and Harry looked between the two women, their normally carefree countenances marred with apprehension, with worry. What's going on? Harry asked, the knowing silence between them. Luna spoke first, Hestia looking to her for guidance. Dennis, she said simply, leaning back in her chair, rubbing her eyes, moving to undo her braid and, one by one, remove the little yellow flowers from her hair. Harry had never seen her look so exhausted. Fuck. He was unsure what else to say, 
suddenly so incredibly troubled by the idea of Dennis drinking, Dennis drunk at the leaky cauldron, relapsing. Dennis had spoken at the meeting yesterday. He had been proud of his progress, hopeful even. What had changed? Harry felt an icy uncertainty spread around his limbs, winding its way through his gut. Were relapses so easy? Was there no warning? Had they missed something as a group? Could you fall so far in just 24 hours alone? Harry glanced between Luna and Hestia again, not able to hide the questions, the doubt, the subsequent anguish from his searching looks. It's okay, Harry. We have him. Go home. We can discuss it in group tomorrow. This isn't Dennis's first time slipping, and we have a plan in place. A plan? A relapse plan? Harry's ears were ringing. Hestia was taking his arm and guiding him down the hall. She was pouring comfort and calm with her earthy magic, rising up from the floor like petrichor. Hestia paused at Luna's circular front door, the golden shimmer of lost souls and dreamers welcome here, draped around them. He'll be okay, Harry. Hestia's voice was a balm, a soft and reassuring touch, but Harry could clearly see the sadness that crossed her face. She had a heart that could hold love for everyone she'd ever met and all the living souls in between. Why? Harry's voice came out strained, and he felt oddly childlike, asking. Why do people relapse sounded like many a pamphlet he had read, but what he meant was why Dennis, why now? Hestia looked down at her black-painted nails a moment, both of them hovering just beyond the doorway, sheltered from the afternoon drizzle by Luna's wisteria vine, blooming lazily in the humidity, the heat. Dennis, like me, struggled to ever leave the war behind. Hestia ran her fingers along one of the large grape-like clusters of hanging purple flowers as she spoke, errant petals fluttering away and drifting down to the ground by their feet. Eventually, I chose a new life. I chose to find beauty in the living things around me. I grew so tired of death, of pain, of suffering. I wanted meaning. I wanted all of that horror to mean I was free to choose the verdant sprigs of life and the vernal pull of love. As she slid her hand along a second wavering bell of blooms, a praying mantis, bright green and full of mischievous magic of its own kind, came away, nestled in her palm. Dennis couldn't leave the war behind because he couldn't bear the thought of leaving Colin behind, of being the only one left alive who cares for his memory, who keeps it. And to keep it, he must think of the war, to live there in the moments of his brother's bravery. Hestia's dark amber eyes met Harry's gaze. When he misses Colin, when he feels the world is forgetting him, he drowns it away. He used to say he'd get drunk enough to hear his voice again, to keep him close, to not forget. And Harry felt as though the ice that had been snaking around his insides had seized his heart. Fear trickled through him. He knew so acutely what Hestia described, the pain, the terror of forgetting, leaving behind those who no one else was carrying, memories that could die with him. For Dennis, it was Colin, but for him, it was serious. I have to go. The words felt sticky in Harry's mouth, coated in fear. He felt Hestia's hand grab for him as he moved from under the wisteria and out into the rain. 
Her fingers just slid past his, and he didn't look back, breaking into a run before spiraling into the crushing darkness of apparition. Wingbeats sounded from the garden as a thestral took flight into the rain. Returning so soon, the hiss was soft, punctuated by the pitter-patter of fat droplets on the stone steps of number 12 Grimald Place. Harry had been returning nearly once a week since his first visit back, spending each day replacing layers and layers of ancestral magic, magic that was dark and twisted with hate, that oozed and seeped the coppery smell of blood and malice. Full of troubles today, I see. The adder's orange eyes were bright against the black ironwood door, tongue flipping into the air. To the adder's left, thestrals were thick in the foreground of the forest scene, nipping at each other, rearing up and taking flight, restless. Harry didn't know if the serpent had meant him or the death beasts, or both, or were they one and the same. Harry looked up at the writhing snake around the old brass knocker. Always. The ironwood door opened of its own accord, the ward shimmering around Harry as he stepped into the arched foyer. The normal dark and dusty smell had dissipated a bit as he spent nearly every visit standing here, working on the first floor of the ancient house. The lighting was brighter, curtains pulled back to let rays of sunlight in from the high arching windows in the sitting room. One night, the kitchen hearth had even rumbled to life, expanses of copper pots hanging above its warming, fiery glow. Harry moved to the familiar stairwell, one he had yet to venture up. The higher floors of the house still felt dark, twisted, and captivating. The magic there was still full of the allure, the promise of oblivion, of hatred, of how easy darkness becomes. Harry felt his legs moving him up each step automatically, each a flashback to the times where he was feverish with need, propelling himself into the swirling comfort of escapism, the comfort of the pain of the war, the memories of those he loved, the reassurance of the familiarity of it, the comfort of the ritual. Harry had passed Regulus's room in a daze and alighted to the hall of Sirius's. It was as dark as ever, the smell of metal thick and purulent in the stale air. Harry could hear his own pulse thudding in his ears, and the thrum of magic that had been building since he left the foyer was arching into a crescendo, ringing like cicadas in the summer night after 17 years of fitful sleep, now desperate in their quest for noise, more and more of them joining the fray. Harry could feel his heart in his chest and the pull of each breath and the sound of his own shallow breathing as he tried to focus himself, tried to drown out the cacophony of noise, grating, vibrating, shuddering noise that was raking around his thoughts like nails beneath his skull. Until a singular note of thought broke through. Is this what Dennis felt? Is this the moment before a relapse? Is this the feeling of the rest of your brain going dark and the desperation of escape becoming a singular goal? Yeah, I think it is. As soon as Harry let that singular thought enter the part of his brain that was still cognizant, he focused upon it, seized it, like the moment of quiet in the overwhelming storm of sound. 
The singular fact of knowing that his brain was creating the illusion of panicked chaos, of fear, of need, made him feel as though a small space between the noise had opened up. Space for him to think just a moment longer, a little deeper. Space for his thoughts to be heard. This is the feeling of needing to escape, but what do I need to escape from? I'm okay. I like being sober. I like my life. I want to live. And like that, the noise around him was dampened. The incessant vibration of cicadas muffled and pushed aside. His heart was slowing and his breaths no longer so haggard. And with each passing second, Harry felt himself holding stronger, on surer footing, more in touch with his limbs and the sense of his own body, his own self. It was glorious to feel so in control, to know that he had met with the moment of weakness that would have broken him, would have stolen him, and had survived it. Today was not his day to relapse. Today was just another day in recovery, a day he had mastered. He hadn't realized he had closed his eyes, but when he opened them, the hall was dark and quiet. His magic, as if it had been waiting for him to call upon it, burst forth from his hands and pushed back against the festering coils of spellwork, of despair. The gold latticework of Harry's magic spun itself into the walls and along the ceiling, pulled deep into the ancient floorboards beneath dusty carpets and Harry's own bloodstains. He stepped forward down the hall, past the closet that had terrified him, the door still nailed shut, streaks of blood pulling away from it across the peeling wallpaper. I am okay. I survived. I chose life. And he walked down the hall, pausing at the doorway to Sirius's old room, most of which had been vanished by Draco's own spellwork the year before. Just the old furniture and mattress left, none of the mess the spoils of Harry's old life. Harry stood there a while, letting his magic weave its way around the room, removing the dark and replacing it with brilliant strands of intricate gold of light, reclaiming. He could feel it pouring out of himself, out of his comfort, of his knowing that he had mastered himself, had met the pull of oblivion, and today he had won. As he peeled away the slick and putrid remnants of the old magic, Harry felt something new beneath it, something soft and careful, something not dark and reeking of copper, but something that felt like the quiet moment when a fern unfurls itself in the undergrowth of the forest, still wet with the morning rain, the sound of the river rushing nearby, the call of birds in the trees and the break of sunlight over the mountains in the distance, something careful but brilliant, beautiful, serene, Harry had never felt this magic before, especially not here, and he fumbled for a second, seeking it out, tracing its roots, letting it pull him toward it. There was a familiarness there, a sense of something, something that smelled of dragon hide and tasted of kiwi, just underripe, bursting with flavor, tempered with the smell of wood smoke, the crackle of wet logs popping on the fire. Harry followed the pull of this new magic, Magic he could not believe he'd never notice. Too suffocated in his own misery, too dull and dampened by the drugs he had always needed to be so near his godfather's things. His godfather, Sirius, that's who this magic belonged to. And a ripple of pain cut so quickly and sharply through Harry, he sucked in a breath. 
for how much he missed him, still sat so close to the surface, grief he had never known how to abate. Harry flipped the disgusting mattress over with a flick of his hand and ran his palms along the floorboards that had hidden beneath the ratty old bed. The magic pulsed through his palms and called to him. He gripped an old floorboard in a little cut-out corner and pulled it up easily, revealing a little hidden cubby beneath it. Harry didn't hesitate to reach in and remove the little wooden box that was slotted there, dusty but smoothed with human touch. Walnut, the wood dark and rich and fed by the contact with skin. The magic he had felt seemed to fall upon him in blissful, rolling waves, gentle and undulating like deep, contented laughter, Sirius's laugh. Opening it, Harry was met with parchment, rolls of it, scraps and pieces and essays worth, some tied with ribbon, others folded. A few looked like they'd been meant to be little animals at some point. There may have been thirty or forty in the box, all covered in scrawling handwriting, the ink old but not yet faded. Harry gingerly removed a long bit of parchment, one that looked well-read, the edges blunted with repeated handlings and rereadings. Harry unfurled it, overcome with curiosity. Mooney, I've loved you since fifth year, though I wasn't brave enough to admit it until sixth, and I've loved you through every waxing and every waning of every moon since. You kept me alive. You kept me whole when everything threatened to break me apart. Memories of you kept me strong in a place of abject despair. They still do. Twelve years I lasted on just the thought of how you used to run to the edge of the forest at dusk, and I'd hear you laughing, how it would catch me, fill me up with the thrill of seeing you so open, so free. Some nights you'd want me to chase you, like that night just after our potions final in sixth year. Do you remember the night you first let me kiss you there in the forest, in the glade full of foxglove and fairy rings? The one that always smells like it's just rained. There was never any fear between us, Mooney. I loved the wolf in you just as much as you loved the man in me and everything that came with it. All of our hidden selves we shared and you were everything I'd ever needed. You still are. Twelve years and my love for you hasn't wavered, hasn't aged. It's just as fiendish and consuming as it was that night I kissed you and you kissed me back. Someday we'll run again through the thickets and chase each other between ancient elms, between banks of ferns and hidden streams, and you'll let me catch you, just as you used to. Because that's all I need to be happy, Mooney, you and our freedom. Let me chase you, let me catch you, and let me love you, wholly, completely. Until then, come visit me often in this veritable hell. We have twelve years of shagging to catch up on. Serious. Harry's mouth was hanging open, staring down at the parchment in front of him. He flipped it over to the other side. Pads, you romantic sap. I kissed you because you were prattling on about us not seeing each other over the summer holiday and I couldn't take it anymore. You tasted like apple cider and maybe a single glass of mulled wine for bravery and I've never for a moment stopped loving you. How could I? Yes, come chase me, then keep me. I'll come by Saturday. R.J.L. Harry felt a laugh bubble up inside of him. A laugh, but really just joy. Sirius was gay? Sirius and Remus were together? He was wrong to imagine Sirius without any love in his life. His life, it seemed, had been nothing but love for his dearest friend. He had just been quiet about it, subtle and 
No one would have expected that from Sirius Orion Black. Harry reached into the box and picked up another small letter, eager to know more, to revel in the idea that Sirius had been happy, that he and Remus had shared laughter and joy and love between the horrors of the war. Pads, do you think Harry is onto us? Was the joint Christmas present a giveaway? When can we tell him? He's so stressed these days, and I think he'd be happy for us. Happy to hear we're busy being happily in love. He worries about you, you know. R.J.L. Harry pulled his knees to his chest, grinning. They had given him a gift together. Together, of course. He flipped the parchment to see Sirius's familiar hand, much less scratchy and more refined than Lupin's scrawl. Mooney. Soon. I think it's about time I sat him down and talked about sex and relationships and all of that nonsense anyway. He's about that age, and I'm sure the Dursleys didn't tell him anything, and I'd imagine Molly will wait until he's 35 before she thinks it's time. He's got to know it'll be okay, and everything's a bit confusing at that age, but he'll find his way. We did, didn't we? And you're a wolf. I say that with a raised eyebrow and a wink, because there's nothing I like more than you and your need to rut. And my parents gave me a book on how to goad a woman into a pure-blood marriage binding ritual, and for the love of all things holy, we owe it to the next generation of kids just to tell them that love is beautiful and normal and they should just be safe and careful with their hearts and other parts. Anyway, come help me devise a lecture plan. I've got so many ideas, I'll need to work out the kinks. I'm winking again, Moons. I'm such a dog. <laughs> Get it? Serious. Below it, a reply simply in Lupin's scratchy writing read, Oh, now that's just horrible. Very naughty. I'll be there tonight, you animal. Harry rested his chin on his knees and hugged them to himself. Sirius's huge personality and unapologetic lust for life was shining through, even in these little scraps of correspondence. It was unfair that he had died. It was painful, still, but... Knowing he had spent his last years being playful in love, writing letters and having secret romance, it warmed Harry. It seemed to lay salve along a wound that had been opened so long he hardly even noticed how much it hurt anymore. Harry was pulled from his thoughts by the feeling of his wards giving way, the sound of the front door slamming open and shut, and the thudding of steps on the stairs. Harry had stumbled to his feet, but before he could cross the room to see who it was, Draco's red, sweaty, and panicky face appeared in the doorway. "'Harry!' the man choked out, his chest heaving from sprinting up the stairs. "'Draco, what are you doing here? What's wrong?' Harry felt fear radiating off of him, and it gripped him, freezing him to the spot. "'What's wrong? What do you mean, what's wrong? Are you okay?' Draco was staring at Harry, then over his shoulder and around the room. Harry felt his eyes rove over his bare arms and reflexively crossed them, now aware what the fear was about, the panic. Explain, please. Harry's voice was cold and hard, and he couldn't hide the irritation that refluxed up at the idea that Draco would think he would hide something like a relapse, that Draco had expected him to relapse at all. Draco didn't say anything, but pulled a letter from his pocket, one that bore Hestia's signature flowing script. Draco. Worried about Harry. Please check on him. He looked like he was going somewhere he wouldn't be found. Hestia. Harry felt himself fill with anger at first. He felt he was being nannied and that no one trusted him. The suspicion felt like a betrayal, 
like they didn't believe he was capable of being an adult, taking care of himself. After a moment, however, the anger subsided down into the fact that Harry had people who cared and who worried, and who had a pretty valid reason to be worried. He had come here to die once, that was true. He couldn't fault them for remembering. He uncrossed his arms and stepped toward Draco, pulling him into a firm hug, one that recognized that Draco's fear was because he cared, because he too had seen Harry dead in this very room and had known the depths that Harry had fallen. He felt Draco melt into his hold, and Harry let the tension and the anxiety bleed away, his feet firmly planted, supporting the other man's weight, wanting him to know he was still strong. It's okay, I'm okay. Harry's voice was soft into the sudden quiet of the room. He let his magic meet Draco's, run across his skin, let him know he was not here to be oblivious, not here to use, he was here to reclaim. Someone from our meetings relapsed, a friend of mine. Harry wanted Draco to understand, wanted to open the door to himself, the place where he was scared and vulnerable, the place that watched someone relapse and felt the ground shake beneath his feet, watched someone lose their sobriety in a moment of respite from the constant battle for control, for the tiredness that is life and recovery, a place that wondered when he too would tire, when he too would be too fatigued to fight. That's why Hestia was worried. She was right, it bothered me. He was in a meeting yesterday, happy, sober, like normal. It felt good to tell him, to share the sadness of it. He lost people in the war. He lost them and he feels alone in carrying their memory, like they won't matter if he doesn't stay grieving. I understand, I guess. Hestia says they relapse because it's too painful to let go of the war when the war is the only place memories of those you love live. Draco pulled back from the hug to look into Harry's eyes. Serious? Yeah, Harry looked away from the kindness in Draco's face, kindness that was edged in worry. The vulnerability of it was astounding, destabilizing. He had never had the courage to talk to anyone about Sirius, not even Ron and Hermione, who had tried for years to get Harry to grieve, to grieve and let go, to grieve and be at peace. I thought the war was all he knew, that he never got a chance, never knew... Harry had stopped mid-sentence because understanding had unfurled around him. He reached for the box. The magic he had felt, that sang of the forest and freedom and the immeasurable but undeniable growth of trees, reaching up toward the sun. It was love. Love painted full and thick and heavy across every grain of the dark wood and each dash of ink in the worn parchment. Love, every time the letters had been unfolded and read, and read again, and held softly and dearly. It was love that was emanating from every single moment, a monument, a testament to how much Sirius had treasured Remus. Harry was smiling, basking in it. God's Draco, I was wrong. I was so, so incredibly wrong. Harry passed the box to Draco and watched the weight of it settle in his hands. He could imagine the magic curling around his fingers, would he recognize it, or would it take time, like it had for Harry? Sirius lived every moment he had. He didn't let his freedom pass him by. He just never told me. Sirius and Lupin? Draco had scanned a tiny little letter folded like a star. 
It seems so. I, I never knew he was gay. It explains how Lupin acted after his death, though. How scared he seemed to be with Tonks. He probably never told her, never felt like he could grieve. The first time he seemed really happy was when Teddy was born. Harry watched Draco looking through some of the letters, his eyes widening at some of the more saucy moments of Sirius's attempts at flirting. Harry had a feeling quite a few of those letters would be explicit. He watched the smile pull at the corner of Draco's mouth. Their love was undeniable. It was pooling around every word, every moment. It was beautiful. People should know that they mattered. Their lives were full and mischievous and happy. They were people who took every moment outside of the war and the fear, and they chose to be happy. So make it known. Draco was running his fingers across a bit of black ribbon that tied a thick scroll shut. How do you mean? You'll think of something. Just honor their memory, honor their happiness in a story that is otherwise dark and full of pain and imagined isolation. Maybe that's what your friend needs, too, a way to make their memory something outside of the war. Or maybe just a memory that they alone don't have to carry. There was silence between them as Harry thought it over. The lightness he felt, even here, in a room where he had once decided to die, was undeniable. Sirius's memory was enshrined in something outside of himself, and the jaunty smile and unyielding joy of the man was palpable, shareable. It wasn't Harry's alone, and that was freeing. I'm glad you're okay. Draco's voice pulled Harry from his thoughts, and he felt a moment of guilt for worrying him so much, reaching out to take Draco's hand. Do you still have his jacket? Harry hadn't thought about the jacket in ages, but it suddenly came to the forefront of his mind. The thought of being wrapped in Sirius, in his magic, in his fearlessness, it no longer felt like a way to hide from the rest of the world, but an homage to him. Harry could be fearless too. He could be unapologetically full of the clever bravado that Sirius had used to flirt with reckless abandon, had used to charm Remus, to chase him. Hmm, removed all of the blood magic when we were in the forest. You had just said to wait to give it to you when you asked for it. Are you asking for it? I think so. Harry squeezed Draco's hand softly. The smell of copper was gone from the air. July 11th, 2009. Draco had left Harry at Grimald Place, explaining that he had sprinted from the Ministry of Magic, leaving a very startled and disgruntled Hermione in the middle of a tirade-slash-explanation-slash-diatribe on the origins of born-and-die people or some such translation. She had found it in an old scroll collection on loan from the Wizarding Library at Timbuktu, and it had been the breakthrough they were hoping for. It had answered questions they had yet to ask. Its origins were in the Niger Delta, some time before the rise of Alexandria, and it chronicled the lives of souls who had been born only to die accompanied by descriptions of the beasts they used as guides to walk between spirit worlds. Leathery black horses, winged, beaks dripping with blood. In Nigerian traditions, the born-and-die people were often a reference to stillborn children or miscarriages, even babies who died shortly after birth or early in childhood. But Hermione had found older legends, legends from the forest tribes that spoke of mediators of death, who had been marked for it, 
those who walked in and out of the dark places of the forest with death beasts as guides, those who had guarded against the deaths of others. Harry had been quiet during Draco's explanation. They both had felt the weight of the implication. They had both been marked for death, born and meant to die, Harry by Dumbledore and Draco by Voldemort. Harry had encouraged Draco to go back to work, knowing that he would have too many questions, too much to think on, should he have stayed. He was like Hermione that way. He'd need to be working, what with his new batch of scrolls and four bins of untranslated new markings that expanded on these otherwise undescribed pieces of magical lore. Neither of them liked uncertainty. They had walked back down the stairs together, both of them pausing and Draco huffing a laugh at the sound of hooves and soft huffs that trailed behind them and around corners of the house that remained dark. And Harry had left him with a soft kiss in the foyer, simple and sweet, a promise that he would be okay, and Draco could trust him to be sure in his recovery, to be safe. Just as Draco was stepping out from behind the old ironwood door, Harry stopped him, grabbing his hand quickly, a thought desperate to be heard, like fire on his lips. I want to tell them, Draco, about us. I want to tell the people close to me. I don't want to be like Sirius and Remus and everyone thinking I'm tragic and lonely. He paused, trying to read Draco's expression. I'm not shy for everyone to know. I don't want parts of me to be secrets. Soon. Draco's singular response had been replaying in Harry's mind all meeting, and he was having trouble focusing as Greg talked about what fear can do. Instead, he was lost in his own thoughts and watching Dennis, who was back to his spot on the half-circle leather chair, looking the same as he always had, all bit slightly red around the eyes. At the end of the hour, Harry hadn't said anything of note, continuing rather to mull over his own thoughts, his plans. He caught Dennis in the hallway after the meeting and asked him to follow him to Luna's office, where they could talk alone, closing the oak door behind them. As the door clicked shut, Harry felt his magic burn a little brighter. I'm working on something, to memorialize those we lost in the war. I want to make something for Colin. Is that okay? Harry tried to reel in his intensity, watching Dennis recoil a bit from his blunt delivery. His right hand had come up across his heart, and Harry could see his eyes were bright. When he finally answered, his voice was quiet and raspy, and the familiar joviality that Dennis so often used was gone. The mask was off. I'll need your help. We'll have to sit down together to do the work, and it'll involve you telling me everything about Colin, about his laugh, about his fears, about his every whim and what caught his fancy. It will take hours, but your memories I'll use to pour into what I'm making, to give it life, to have it echo with a feeling so others can experience it. Is that all right? Dennis was trembling, even more than usual. Tears were spilling over puffy lower lids. You don't have to. And Harry was hit with the shame that Dennis carried for loving his brother so much. So much it had consumed him. So much it left no room for anything but the terrifying undertow of a grief that had left him drowning all these years. Dennis, the people we loved, they died. They died and it was horrible. They died and they mattered. They mattered and they deserved to be honored. They deserve to be known. Their bravery, their heart, their courage, their sacrifice, their flaws, all of it. 
Colin deserves to be remembered by people other than just you. And Dennis was crying openly, his back up against Luna's door, his legs giving way beneath him as he sobbed, hands over his mouth, as if to stifle the pain. Dennis had never cried in their meetings, had never broken, had always remained upbeat, supportive, enthusiastic, quick to lend a helping hand. But this, this is what had been pooling underneath that veneer. Harry knelt next to him and pulled him close, enfolding him into his arms and feeling Dennis's stuttering, gasping breaths against his shoulder. And Harry stayed like that, holding him close and letting him cry until Dennis sat up, wiping his face on his shirt, blotchy and eyes swollen, but somehow looking as though he had been scrubbed clean of a layer of guilt, had been given a place to put all of the sadness he'd been carrying around, weight that had been piling up atop his bony shoulders. Can we start tonight? We can start tonight. Harry's smile was genuine, and he let his magic pour from him, gentle and warm and knowing, knowing the relief of laying down the things you carry. July 13th, 2009. Harry stood, leaning his aching shoulders down over his workbench, his hands splayed out on the table beneath him. He needed a break. He padded to the kitchen and summoned a glass, letting the tap pour in icy cold water, the first sips of which washed away the sawdust that had gathered in his throat without his even noticing. Dennis had come by to Grimald Place the past two nights. They had sat together in one of the old drawing rooms, one that Harry had moved all of the furniture out of to convert to a workroom, just a simple table and some old chairs. His workbench was in the center of the room, across from the old black family tapestry. He had spent the whole afternoon after their meeting preparing it, wiping the horrid, spiteful magic away, replacing it with his own calm and soothing spellwork, magic that stemmed from his desire to help, to heal. By the time Dennis had arrived, he had polished the ancient mahogany mantle, rubbed oil into the window panes, the eaves, the floorboards. He had tended to the room, had nourished it, and he could feel the ancient beams had craved it. Heading back to the drawing room, the oil lamps on the walls burned brighter. The house felt warmer, more welcoming. Harry had owled Hermione every few hours to keep her from worrying, and Little Dipper was snoozing in the corner on the back of one of the chairs. Harry's Thestral had joined them in the afternoon, too. He had simply appeared in the back of the large room without either Harry or Dennis noticing, eventually giving himself away with a snorting huff after Dennis had finished telling Harry the story of Colin coming home for the summer after his first year at Hogwarts, full to the brim with fantastical stories and bursting with excitement. He barely mentioned being petrified, waving it off as a small inconvenience. The bigger picture was the absolute magic of the wizarding world, the wonder of Hogwarts of spells and charms and a thousand and one magical plants, herbs, and fungi. Dennis had been laughing, but it changed to a scream when he realized there was a gigantic thestral just behind him, wandering over to sniff Harry's new workbench. His wings folded neatly along his bony sides. Harry had apologized profusely for the inherent creepiness of his ominous companion and promised he was really harmless, quite good-natured, really, a bit of a mischievous trickster, if he's honest. 
Dennis had to be convinced to stay with a cup of tea and much reassurance, but they made little progress after that, and eventually he had gone home, though not before telling Harry about how he and Colin had stayed at home that year, the year of the battle, reciting happy memories to each other, just in case they needed to cast a Patronus charm, making sure they knew they were loved, were cared for, trying to keep safe. Harry took another sip of the cold water, thinking over Colin and his Patronus. It had been a hummingbird, zipping about the room, fast and flighty and full of energy. It had been perfect, and Colin had been thrilled. Let's talk about Dennis and his relapse. What about it? Everything. What do you mean everything? <laughs> so, um, where to start with? I feel like there's so much we could talk about with this. So, like, being in recovery, it's like the inevitability of knowing somebody who relapses. Or being someone who relapses. Or being yeah. someone who relapses. No, you, yeah. yeah you, if you go to meetings, you will. Mm see it mm. you will both see people relapse and people struggle and people die yeah um that's something i wrote about later but mm. the reality of being in recovery and being around other people mm. who are in recovery is that the odds of survival aren't good yeah and like the odds of perfect sobriety aren't good mm. and you have to be sort of prepared to deal with that yeah and harry does deal with it harry does a fantastic fucking job yeah. of dealing with it Mm-hmm. He, he, yeah, I wrote so pretty much like how to be stellar at your, yeah. your, because it's, it's, you will feel horrible and you will struggle yeah. and you will have moments where you're like, it'll be so much easier if I just give in to the overwhelming noise yeah. my brain is making. Mm-hmm. But if you can hang on to a half a second of weight. Yeah wait, what is this? Yeah. What is this? What happens next? What happens if I give in? Or if, mm-hmm. I, if I... If I don't. Yeah. You know, just wait. And if you have that moment of stillness, mm. and if you can survive in that moment of stillness, like in the middle of all that noise, mm. you will be okay. Yeah. It's like such you, a good moment. Yeah, it mm. is. Yeah, it's very visceral too. Like you can like really feel that like it's such a consuming, like you're saying, noise. It, yeah. Yeah, that sick part of your brain gets so fucking loud. Yeah. And yeah. I think a lot of people when they get overwhelmed by something, anything, stress, any mm. any overwhelming feeling, it almost feels like it's too noisy for your thoughts to make any sense. Yeah. Like that sound just like cicadas mm-hmm. making noise is yeah. what I think of. Just mm-hmm. like buzzing, overwhelming mm. noise. Yeah. For me but, it's like a fork in a garbage disposal. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> I hate that. That's always the, the sound that I associate it with, like with that overwhelming like stress. Oh, I, I think of cicadas. Mm. So what's more interesting? <laughs> what do you mean more interesting? It's, I think it's it's just different. Yeah, it's yeah. higher pitched, yeah. I guess. Whatever, everybody has a thing, probably. Yeah. Tell us what you think or what you hear yeah, what, what when I'm... you're being like swallowed up by your demons. Yeah. <laughs> what's the background noise to that? Yeah. Your playlist. <laughs> What would you call it on Spotify? (laughs) Mine's silverware in a blender. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, I hate that so much. Yeah. (laughs) Um, 
So yeah, Harry does really well. And Hestia writes to Draco because yeah. she's worried. Yeah. Which I think is like a really cool example of like a support network and like that accountability that comes well, with it. Well, it's both cool, but also it makes Harry feel like no one trusts him. Of course. Yeah. Um, but I think it goes back to that point that Luna says also, where she's like, "You, this is early days still. Oh, yeah. You totally. Know? Totally. It, yeah. I think Harry then realizes that yeah. standing in the same room he Tried like, to, overdosed yeah. in, being like, oh, yeah, I'm not great at this. That was like a year ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, Still real fresh memories. Yeah. <laughs> and especially like Draco being the one who had found him there. Yeah, like, you exactly. Know, he definitely that, has like a knee-jerk panic reaction. Definitely. And it's really easy to feel infantilized yeah. by people around you when you're in recovery mm. because everyone's like monitoring your every behavior and thought, mm. um, especially if they're worrying about you. And that makes mm. you feel really small and incapable. Mm. Um, but I think it's important, especially in moments that are this big, yeah. for example, to step back and be like, ah, it's love. Yeah. And I, you know, maybe I'm not as good at this as I thought I was. Mm. And it's nice to have a support system. Yeah. Especially, and then, and especially then, when he had that moment on the stairs of being like, is this, is this what happens before a relapse? You know, he's yeah. like going through those motions. Yeah. Yeah. No, he took himself to Grimmauld yeah. Place. Yeah, I mean, like, he, like a knee-jerk reaction. He isn't going there because he wants to find Sirius' old stuff. No, he's no, no. going there because he's so overwhelmed, yeah. and that's the place he goes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're correct. Mm. Yep. And um, and then he finds the letters. Yeah, Wolfstar. <laughs> oh God, I love it. <laughs> yeah, I love the idea of them together, God, Sirius really, and Remus. I, I really love it. I really love Sirius's character. Mm. That like very hilarious, Mm-mm. not taking anything seriously, yeah. but like being so full of life. Mm. I mean, I love love his character. Yeah, that's really wonderful. I mean, he's a complete ass too. Mm. I mean, I won't pretend that he's not. Mm. Um. But, I, like, just the idea of imagining him in love. Yeah. Just, like, what a fucking <laughs> little bastard he yeah. would be. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. No, I love it. It's great. I yeah. think they're such a good match. Yeah, and I, I kind of wanted this idea of, like, Harry realizing he had imagined this, like, entirely tragic life mm-hmm. of Sirius's. And, like, you know, in the beginning he th- thinks, like, oh, he had no one who loved him. Yeah. But it's just he was... Quiet. Yeah, which you would never yeah, have expected. Yeah, you would never have expected him to be. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And and I like the mirroring, too, of, like, Dennis's relapse being because um, it's the only way he knows how to feel close to his dead brother. Yeah. And, like, Harry really understanding that. Oh, yeah. And being like, yeah, if I, I can mean, get it. he hallucinates Sirius yeah. when he's, like, off his tits yeah. high. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. that's how he... That's the only conversation he's had with him. Yeah. Like, and probably the only time he's really engaged with like yeah. thinking about him. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't even talk to Ronnie, Ron and Hermione about mm. him. It's, like, too painful to bring up. Yeah. Mm. And, like, learning how to, like, process that in a more healthy way. Yeah. Totally. Mm. And so I, I like there's more mirroring, too, because in this, in the last chapter, or my last chapter, Harry is the one who gives Draco an idea about his work. Mm. And now here, Draco gives Harry an idea mm. of how to, you know, deal with this fact that you have such immense love and and you want to live in these memories, but the memories are so tragic yeah. and so traumatic. Like, what do you do with that? Yeah. And Draco's the one who say, memorialize it. Yeah. You know, don't let people carry that alone. Mm. Yeah, I really love that. 
Um, and the beginning of this chapter is when he's in a meeting with Luna. His solo yeah, therapy. Yeah, his solo therapy with Luna. <coughs> and he's, like, really mad about his orgasm schedule. Yeah, because... And he's, like, yep. Yeah, so it, it becomes a question of, like, am I making things worse by trying to hyper-control mm. things? So we talk about this sometimes in, like, the mirroring between mm. Draco and Harry. Harry is someone who needs control to survive. Mm-hmm. And Draco is someone who needs less control to mm-hmm. survive. And it's like the balance of those two opposites. Yeah. And so I think Harry's getting a feeling for what it's like to be overly anxious mm. and hyper-focusing about this issue. Yeah. Versus what it feels like in, reco- in recovery, in his sobriety side, mm. like that control is what keeps him stable. Yeah. So when he feels like the control is what keeps him stable, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Keep it around. Yeah. Obviously, the control is working and necessary. Mm. But when the control is what he feels like is driving him up the fucking wall yeah. and making him miserable, mm. then obviously he can back off from that. Mm. Yeah. So it's about like balancing the two sides. Mm. And constantly self-reflecting on like what your actual needs are. Yeah. And I mean, he's angry about how much focusing he has to do on it. Mm. But he's never felt that way about, like, opiate recovery. Yeah. So there's an obvious difference between the two. And there's a difference between being annoyed about it because you don't want to deal with it. Yeah. And being annoyed about it because you're spending more time. Like, you feel like you're pathologizing something that doesn't need to be. Well, a lot of addicts do that in the beginning anyway Mm. because they don't want to, like, come to terms with the fact that they have a problem. But if you're, like, pathologizing something so that the effect of you pathologizing it Mm. is worse than the thing. Yeah. Then, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Harry's like, I would like to back off this now. (laughs) Yeah, too much control. That's weird. I know. Seems wrong. That's what it is. (laughs) Seems like a scam, but here we are. (laughs) Yeah. And how angry he is about it. Because it's like such a frustrating, nuanced thing. And, you know, Luna's like, well, you told us you were worried about it and it was stressing you. And so this is the process. Yeah, exactly. And now we have gone through it, and now you have a better understanding yeah. of, like, your relationship with sex. Yeah. And then we also get a glimpse into Luna's, like, why she does what she does. Oh, yeah, her mom. Yeah. The story of her mom. Yeah. Yeah, I sort of always imagined it would be something, like, very odd, experimental, mm, and out mm. there. And that's sort of what you get from Xenophili- Xenophilius and Luna, mm. both of them. Um, but it made sense to sort of tie her backstory into why muggle mm. drugs, why, mm. you know, this whole process that yeah. Luna's in. It was, sort of seemed like a really neat way for her to address that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Luna's fascinating. Mm-hmm. We could have written a whole side story whole, of her no, and so, Greg. So interesting. Yeah. Um, and what else did I want to talk about? There's so much in this chapter. There's so fucking much. Like I love this chapter. Yeah, it's great. Um, and so Dennis's relapse, um, it's like we kind of like you kind of intimated that it's something that happens like over in regular intervals. Yeah. Like he had just come off a relapse when Harry started. Yep. And now it's happening again and like there's a contingency plan mm-hmm. and like everyone's very used to it. Yeah. And Harry's very shocked. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Whereas like everyone's like Tom called again. Yeah. Um and like going through the motions of that and I find it really interesting then when Harry comes to him later and is like, you know, it's okay that like you miss your brother, but like, you know, we have to deal with it in a healthy way, kind mm-hmm. of a thing. And it's like Dennis has never had that opportunity to do that before 
Yeah, or, well, I think that's part of Harry's character is that mm. he takes on so much from other people. Mm. And he's doing it in such a selfless way. Mm. And, like, a like sometimes, you know how you mentioned in your chapter that, like, it was different for Draco telling his friend than telling his therapist. Yes, totally. And I think this is a moment that's very similar to yeah. that. It's just a friend coming to him yeah. and saying, tell me. Yeah. Tell, give me all of your pain. Yeah, exactly. You know, I will help. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's, like, really... I, this That part fucking kills me, by the way. <laughs> like, it's something I also cry about every time I read it. Yeah. I think because in that sense, I really identify with Dennis. Like, yeah. I fucking get it, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> But, like, and also how overwhelming, like, mm. the first, probably the first time a friend has come to you and said, like, here, let me carry these, mm. these horrible things. These that super you, overwhelming things. That yeah. you've been carrying around yourself mm. for so long. And it is absolutely killing you. Mm. Um, like, I, I'm here. Yeah. I, and I know how meaningful it yeah, is. Yeah, definitely. And, like, feeling guilty about having such, like, intense feelings about these things. Yeah, because yeah. everyone else is moving on from yeah. the war. Everyone else is healing and yeah. doing better. And... Or appears to be. Well, at least, yeah. yeah. Um, and you know. here you are, struggling. Well, yeah, I mean, he loved his brother. Yeah, exactly. They were so it. cute. How could, you not, <laughs> how could you not love the, the creepy brothers? Yeah, exactly. Like, so pure. Fucking love it. Um, so then, yeah, Harry deciding to help him. I can't remember if you say exactly what you're making no, in this chapter no. yet. Yeah, no. Um, Just that he's made a workroom. Yeah. In Grimald Place. Mm. He really starts retaking Grimald yeah. Place. And it's like room by room yeah, by room. Yeah. And I, like, this I, is mine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> Dark magic. <laughs> mm-hmm. And like the house starts really changing in response yeah. to that. And I, I love that. Yeah, I, love I really, really like it. Mm-hmm. And his Thestral shows up. <laughs> yeah to which harry menace. yeah which harry isn't like surprised about at all because mm. now it's just the thing mm. but obviously dennis is like what the shit yeah, like what the fuck dude <laughs> i gotta go yeah <laughs> yeah and yeah and i i like the i sort of hinted that dennis takes him through all the way from year one to mm. year seven yeah and sort of like you know stories of his brother and mm. just being able to talk about that stuff yeah, and so to share in someone else, mm. you know, appreciating his brother. And also, those are memories mostly outside of the war. Yeah. Which is also important. Yeah, and it's like, how often do you think he gets the opportunity to talk about that? Never, because his dad is also dead. It's fucking heartbreaking, man. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you doing this to me? I don't know, man. It's just what happened. I wrote this chapter really fast. Yeah, actually. you did. Yeah. yeah. It's like a couple days. And it's very long. Yeah. Yeah. But I like it. Jam-packed. I like that it's Fucking called... jam-packed. I like that it's called reclaiming because that's the whole theme of part three. Yeah. That's the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is sort of like our first mm-hmm. real like look at it. Yeah. And I also love... Um, like, we get a glimpse into what Draco's doing with Hermione. Oh, yeah. More, and, like, get, yeah. really get into the world building, too. Yeah, um, that was one thing I wanted to, to bring up. Born and die people is a real concept. Mm. That's not something I made up. Um, and I actually first learned about it reading Amos Tutuola, mm. who's a very famous Nigerian author who writes a lot of... He writes a lot of stories that weave in very traditional West mm. African or Nigerian, actually, um, themes and practices and even like perspective and Mm, ideology mm. so the born and die people is exactly that um he writes about them as as children who are 
uh, born of, like, they're either the parent has a miscarriage or the child dies young, but then their soul is reborn somewhere else. Mm. So they're, like, a different type of human being. Yeah. So, like, they're not like everyone else. Mm. Um, and he talks about it. I think it's his book, um, The Witch Herbalist in the Remote Town. Mm. Um, so I took a lot of inspiration from that. He also wrote My Life in the, the, the My Year in the Bush of Ghosts. Mm. And um, the palm wine drunkard and all these like very famous uh, Nigerian stories. He's such a fascinating author, yeah, and he, is. he he writes um, like the way he tells stories is very much like driven from an oral tradition of mm. of West African storytelling. Mm. In this like idea that repetition and time and all of these different mm. techniques are so they're so different from like what you'd expect from a Western perspective. Yeah. It's very hard to get into his writing, but then mm. once you do, you're like, yeah. holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, he has this sort of um, discussions about yeah. magic. Well, it's like slightly abstract too. And it's like, extremely and it's like abstract. it's non-linear. No, totally. Yeah, totally. it's really interesting. Yeah, I, I really love it. Um, but yeah, his, his discussions of magic and these different types of people within mm. people and how they interact with other humans and how souls and pe- these other you know born and die people can sort of like exist amongst people and you won't even know that you are one of them yeah. or you'll forget mm. or that you know anyway that got me thinking about this idea that there are people who may have a relationship with death yeah and that like inherently yeah mm. that may just be part of who they are even yeah. if it's predestined or chosen by magic or yeah part of you know their their lineage or Mm. destiny whatever frame of reference you want to look at it in yeah there's something there i love it (laughs) anyway i really recommend anus to all those books (laughs) um and that's something that like we like to kind of dive into like as we keep working on the world building too is like looking at how different groups of people view concepts of death Mm, and how that shaped our own views of death I think too Mm. um both of us in our professional lives do well I don't know maybe you less than me I see a lot of death yeah um but you in maybe a different way yeah yeah I'll say that (laughs) yeah so I spend a lot of time around death and the dying actually Mm. and um sometimes like (laughs) especially while we were writing this I'd be at work and I'd just be like I I know that festivals don't exist because if they did, I would see them everywhere mm. around, like, this whole building that mm-hmm. I'm in and, you know, around all of these people. And, mm-hmm. like, sometimes I would just think about that. Like, yeah. you know, maybe they're, like, well, if I could see them, they would be here. Yeah. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> anyway, that's, like, I think one of the reasons we were interested in exploring that, yeah, too, is because we definitely do have a lot of yeah. time spent around death and yeah. the concept of death. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because I don't really, I don't really see a lot of it, but I. You see the the repercussions or the yeah. the fallout from yeah. death. I yeah, would say. definitely, and constantly having to like face the concept of it on a like regular basis. Yeah. Whereas yeah. the I, reality of like this exists, it is very real and very near. <laughs> yeah. Whereas yeah. I feel like I have that, but more specifically, I am with people who are dying. Yeah. You know, like yeah. when you hear someone die, I've had. Mm literally that experience of someone being right next to me mm. dying yeah and there's nothing you can do mm. yep yep mm-hmm. shit's dark shit's dark 
Life is dark. <laughs> no, it's wonderful. Death is just... Well, that's what we try and do. I think yeah. we try and reframe it. Yeah. Death is just part of it. Yeah, it is. Maybe just a poorly explained part. Mm. Poorly explored. Mm. That's Yeah, maybe mm. that's a better way of saying that. Yeah. But anyway, we try and <laughs> explore <Yeah>. it more <laughs> as we go on. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I really enjoy doing the world building. And I... Uh, it's another one of those things where like JK really pissed me off when she wrote the books is no, she when gave, she did that thing afterwards when she got famous and yeah. was like, there's a, there's a school in Africa, one school for the whole fucking continent. There you guys go. You get one system of magic for your hundreds of thousands of cultural groups. Have fun. <laughs> like I just wanted to light myself on fucking fire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was really insulting. Yeah, like so <laughs> insulting. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Get just leave. Just stop talking about the continent. Just leave. <laughs> Actually, that's true, and it's so common for people from the West yeah. to do that. Specifically with Africa, I'm sure they do it with South America and parts of Asia as yeah, well. Yeah, definitely. But um, I remember like my first college roommate. Mm. Like on the paperwork, it was like had some had us answer some questions, and one of the questions I answered was the fact that I had uh, been in West Africa. Mm. Um, and, you know, whatever I had experience in West Africa. So they gave me a roommate from the continent, but she was Swazi. Mm. And I was like, <clears throat> in the form, I definitely said West Africa. Swaziland is like, <laughs> <laughs> you Sing. couldn't pick a further apart two places. <laughs> like, what the fuck? You know, just all Africans, same, yeah, same, same, vibe, same, 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 same. Yeah. I was like, okay. That's this so is completely that's, different. That's very insulting. It was just like, both of us looked at each other and we were like, oh, well. <laughs> that seems like, yeah, yeah. they would do that. <laughs> they would do that. Yeah, we didn't get along very well at all. Shame. Well, yeah. there's, yeah. There's Compounding issues. Yeah. She's very nice. Mm. That's all I have to say. <laughs> Maybe I'm the shitty one. She definitely thought I was the shitty one. <laughs> Did I tell you You're that You're just story? abrasive, like steel wool. <laughs> Thank you. How kind. But did I tell you the story of why? No. Oh, okay. So my first year of university, um, mm. we all had to read the Bible. And we all got a copy of it. Yeah, it was yeah. this big... Uh, we, we read it from like a literary point mm-hmm. of view. So like not like a religious perspective. Yeah. So it was like a thick-ass version of the Bible. And it was the biggest textbook I had, mm. or book that I had. Uh, and one day I wanted to keep the door open, so I used it as a doorstop. <laughs> and she was very religious. <laughs> and, um, oh my god! She, she was very angry that I used it as a doorstop. Yeah, abrasive, like and steel wool. <laughs> that's not like steel wool. I just, it was the heaviest yeah, book yeah, I had. It's great. It was I fucking hot. Love it. This that... is why we're friends. This is, this is why oh this works. Oh my god. <laughs> I didn't understand why she was so mad about it for like several hours. Several hours. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Until I came back later and was like, "Oh, do you think it's because it's the Bible?" Shit. <laughs> Damn. Oh fuck. And well, yeah. That's anyway. amazing. Anyway, that's like the best story I've ever heard. I know, and like, it's so stupid because, wow, well, how can I explain this? Like when I filled in the form that I was like, you mm. know, in West Africa or whatever. When I think about there okay a it's like technically a muslim country but the area that i was in doesn't give a fuck about islam Mm. like they had a mosque but they used it for like storage because this 
Islamic group comes mm. in and like builds mosques for yeah. free. I mean, it was just like a basically a single building with a tin roof. Yeah. But they were just using it for storage because yeah, storage, storage. free storage. Yeah. <laughs> and nobody cared about any kind of Christianity or any Western religion mm. at all. But if you think about other parts of Africa, I mean, Christianity is huge and yeah. particularly because of missionaries and the mm-hmm. tradition of Christian missionary work which I have a lot of feelings about almost entirely negative yeah. as well but anyway the, the two parts like if you think about sub-Saharan Africa as a full West Africa versus Southern Africa mm. that was a huge difference and yeah. religion well then you one think of, of like rural West Africa compared like there's yes like, to very modern cosmopolitan yeah. Southern Africa for yeah. example um yeah, I think she actually lived in Joburg. So, yeah. <laughs> like whatever. Anyway, the difference between those two, let alone the major religious like yeah. background of the two places. Goodness. Like that's just where you start from. It's like being on a completely different continent. Yeah. It's like saying the similarities between Maine mm-hmm. and Costa Rica. Yeah. What what sub- <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> What? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So anyway, this is a huge continent is what we're trying to say. And JK and all these other people who sort Mm. of lump everything in Africa together are just doing everyone a huge disservice. Yeah. And it it continues that very problematic narrative of Africa is this homogenous, relatively simple version. Relatively empty place (laughs) full of elephants. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. I have very strong feelings about it. Yeah, I think we both do, and it Mm. comes out a bit in the next few chapters. Yeah, definitely. That's just like my little soapbox I build myself Mm. and stand on and Mm. scream from in the next few chapters, so everybody Didn't she do the same with Asia, though, as well? Isn't the only school there in Japan? Yeah, I think she gave Asia one school. Imagine having China and Japan have the same school. Yeah, I'll have to look that up, because that's weird. She also gave North America one school, maybe two but then, like, did very inappropriate things with... The Native American thing? Certain Native American groups. Oh, yeah. It's, well, well, I, mean, I mean, I think there's also a lot of similarities in how people, like, homogenize Native American no, culture totally. as, like, one single, like, umbrella concept, mm-hmm. which could... With all the same sort of traditions Yeah, anyway. which, like, couldn't be more inappropriate yeah. to do. Like, no, why totally. are you doing this? Yeah. Please stop doing this. <laughs> yeah. Everybody stop. Yeah. 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 I agree with you, and I am here for this mm. discourse. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that upsets me deeply. Very deeply. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's that soapbox. And oh, and Harry saying he wants to tell everyone about them. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love. I love what happens with that. Yeah. No, I do too. <laughs> but I love how Harry just like suddenly decides. He's like, okay, yeah, we're together and I want everyone to know. And Draco's like, wait a fucking second. <laughs> you want to do what now? <laughs> well, but I mean, if yeah. he thinks about it, I mean, Sirius and Remus died and yeah. no one would have ever known about mm. like how wonderful this hilarious love between them yeah. was if he hadn't found this box of letters. Yeah. I yeah. mean, everyone who knew them then is dead. Yeah. And now he doesn't want anyone to think that he's, like, lonely and sad. Yeah. That's so don't, sweet. Don't pity me. Yeah, I'm exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And because, like, Ron and Hermione don't know yet. No. Mm. No. It's great. I feel like Hermione's wonderfully distracted yeah, with Draco. Super, hilariously. Yeah, hilariously. <laughs> and I love the idea that, like, she hasn't told Harry yet. 
because like she oh, has yeah. that inherent like. Well, no, because because yeah, Ron everyone, and Hermione know how yeah. he obsesses about Draco. Yeah, Malfoy. yeah, yeah. Exactly. That's it's a like thing. A, it's a thing, and yeah. they're like, "Well, remember sixth year, and yeah. we're just not gonna mention anything to Harry because I can't cope with that." Yeah, <laughs> Harry is an auror, like yeah. ex auror, yeah. obsessing over Draco Malfoy yeah. again, again, like, and it has to do with like death magic. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh no, this can only go poorly. Like you can imagine <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hermione's like she's already set up like so many privacy, like repelling yes. charms, everything. Yes. Like he can't go near her notes. He yeah. just hasn't noticed. Yeah, exactly. like she's done a lot of work in the background. Sure he does yeah, not notice she's working with Draco. Yeah, it's super. Funny. Make sure she doesn't smell like him. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> you know Harry would notice. No, definitely not. <laughs> Which I find so funny because I have this like feeling that she definitely talks with Ron about it. Right, that oh, she's yeah, working yeah, with definitely. Draco, and definitely. like Ron's mentioned that he's you know done the trial with Draco yeah. and everything, and like they're having this whole like secret conversation, just yeah. excluding Harry yeah. from like the one thing that they're like we cannot fucking deal with you, yeah, dude. Right? You're he's gonna he's gonna weird. relapse. Yeah, it's yeah. just gonna it, he's gonna spiral. Yeah. we're not supposed to stress him. Yeah. we're only supposed to tell him we love him. The pamphlet said so. The pamphlet said so. Yeah. Don't mention Draco. Yeah, <laughs> that'll be way God. too much for him to deal with right yeah. now. <laughs> love it so much yeah i love when they tell him yeah no it's so funny are you gonna read your chapter tonight yeah after dinner fabulous it's gonna be great someone asked me recently how long it takes us to make an episode and they were like what like a week and i was like <laughs> an we hour just, and a we half binge this shit yeah no we literally just sit here and record ourselves talking yeah and it doesn't take me that long to edit it no it's like seconds yeah i am good at tedium yeah you really are do you want to do that now Fuck yeah. Okay. Okay, we're done here. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you guys next time. Next time. <laughs>